0: Hey, everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Marshall, and today we're sitting down with Felicia Marcus. Felicia Marcus is the Landreth Visiting Fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program. She is also an attorney, consultant, and member of the Water Policy Group, and she received her undergraduate degree from Harvard College and her law degree from New York University School of Law. Ms. Marcus previously served as the chair of the California State Water Board, which is regulatory responsibility for water conservation, groundwater management, wastewater recycling, stormwater capture, desalination, water rights law, and California's drinking water program. Ms. Marcus previously led the Environmental Protection Agency's Southwest and Pacific region, and she led the Los Angeles Department of Public Works before her time at the EPA. Ms. Marcus currently serves on the Commission on Environmental Cooperation, Joint Public Advisory Council between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, and she's also a fellow at the U.S. National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for sitting down with us today, Ms. Marcus. It is truly great to have you on campus. Well,
1: it's a pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so the first question I wanted to ask was kind of about your background growing up. Did you know you wanted to pursue a career in law and environmental policy growing up, or was there any kind of particular moment growing up or in undergrad where you— kind of decided on a career in law and environmental policy.
1: You know, it's interesting. I had no clue. and I absolutely had no desire to become a lawyer. And I thought at the time the environmental movement was in its infancy, although there had been elements of it before. But I really, and I, I miscued this a little bit, I, I thought it was sort of um, – the affluent trying to protect their views and vistas. And so it wasn't something that had grabbed me at the time. And um, I was an East Asian studies major and was fascinated by all things China historically and politically, et cetera. Um, and I had gone off on a fellowship to do that. But I'm not a phenomenal linguist. It doesn't come naturally to me. And that's a tough language. So I really wanted to be sure that that's what I wanted to do. I applied to go to graduate school in uh, poli-sci with an emphasis on Asia and Asia-American interactions. Um, And I just decided to take a break and work on Capitol Hill to see if maybe domestic policy would grab me. And that's when it happened because it was in the late 70s, Love Canal – Had just happened, and all of a sudden, I saw the environmental issue in terms of public health and safety, in terms of all income levels, all races, as social justice issue. In in addition, and that just opened a whole new world. Superfund was being uh, debated uh, on the Hill. Al Gore was a senator pushing for it very uh, eloquently, and I, I I took. I moved into that job for a legislator and oddly enough, I worked on protecting land <laughs> um, uh, a lot, getting money to, to grow a uh, national recreation area in the Southern California area where I was from. Um, and so I, I came it, – I, I, it, it just grabbed me because it was intellectually challenging. It was important but also it was intellectually challenging because it's – frequently not about good and bad. It's about complex resource Mm trade-offs. So it grabbed my head. It grabbed my heart, but it grabbed my head um, a lot. And it was about all, all sorts of political and policy issues. And so that led me to law school because at the time, everything was very legally based. It was sort of the beginning of the environmental statutes and rules and their implementation. And so it seemed obvious to go to law school. I'm jealous of all the people and all the different majors people can have now in college that have the whole range of environmental policy and science, law, etc. It's uh, it's glorious to see so many.
0: Yeah, so focusing in a little bit on your time on the Hill, um, what exactly did you do? Uh, you know, who did you work for? And uh, how have the experiences and the skills that you learned on the hill kind of shaped your career off it.
1: That's an interesting question. Well, I worked for a very liberal congressman from the West LA area who was in a very safe seat. So I didn't learn much about politics, but I learned everything about policy, which in that in those jobs is unusual. And he had taken a position on the rules committee, which is the committee that reviews bills before they go to the floor and decides how they're going to go to the the floor. So in theory, again, in theory, and Yogi Berra said, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there definitely is. Um, But in theory, um, it it should be a committee where people ask about the merits of the policies and the bills, but usually they don't. But my boss did. Mm -hmm. So the cool thing in that job is I didn't learn as much about politics as I know now from that job, but I learned a lot about policy and um, and about the politics that Surround them, but it was fun because my job was to come up with the questions he ought to ask about a bill, which frequently did surprise the authors of the bills.
0: Yeah, and that's a particularly fun committee because I believe it's the only committee where members actually testify, right?
1: Yeah, um, they do. They yeah. testify mm-hmm. about their bills. That's mm-hmm. a really good point. Yes, they do, and they are shocked to be asked hard questions about their bills, which sometimes they can't answer, which is interesting. My my boss. When he was testifying on a bill, which you, they do in, in front of some jurisdictional committees, he would just let me testify, which most other uh, electeds wouldn't do. So I had a, a an unusual experience on the hill working for a particularly great um, person. But it, it helped me just like law school helped me in terms of advanced civics, which is having a more realistic view of what it actually takes to get something done. Because you can talk all day about the perfect world or the perfect idea or what theoretically – Someone ought to do, you can castigate the people that disagree with you, and we're seeing that more and more in our political discourse. It's not like this is the only time it's happened, it's just at a feverish pitch, much more intense than anything I've seen since the 60s. Um, but if you actually want to get things done, you've got to have personal relationships with people, you've got to ask them questions, to understand what they really want versus what they say they need, et cetera, so that you can craft compromises that get what your stakeholders want but also honor the fact that other people have other stakeholders or you can sit on the sidelines and just critique people who disagree with you. And I I really respected the people on the Hill that were focused on trying to get stuff done for their constituents but also for the world at large. So I, I learned an awful lot. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, I always – I had a professor – uh, at CMC, we always said, like, there's get-to-yes senators and senators who are just – they automatically want to say no. And mm-hmm. it's definitely more fun to be working for someone who's a, a get-to-yes and actually wants to do something. And so now kind of transitioning to after law school – um, what exactly did you do between your time at law school and your time at the Los Angeles Department of Public Works? Um,
1: well, that's a crazy story. I mean, I guess my career is kind of a kids don't do this at home. Kind <laughs> of it's not the kind of career path that you would plan. i when I went to law school, I wanted I, I didn't want to just, well, on one hand, I thought I was a little cynical and I thought, well, the only way we're going to make progress is through being able to sue government. To implement these laws that you know we got passed, but they were being implemented very slowly, or not well, or in ways depending on the agency you know one one could call corrupt or uh, captured by the industry they were trying to regulate, um, and so that's what I thought I would do. But I also really was so I was almost so far. Left, I was right. I don't know, not to, to uh, do caricatures of positions. I actually wanted to prosecute white-collar criminals for eco-crimes, which was a growing beginning field. So I spent some time doing that in internships uh, when I was in law school. Um, but then when I got out of law school, I clerked for a great judge who was also a wonderful man. I mean I just had very lucky with my mentors and, I, um, and then I had a fellowship at a public interest Firm called the Center for Law and the Public Interest. doesn't exist anymore, but it did environmental and civil rights and housing and voting rights, I and mean, it was just heaven in terms of taking on public interest cases, and I really liked it. And the fellows would rotate being on intake. And I mean, I'm making, I'll try and make this story shorter. A guy from the Sierra Club, his name was Larry Lacombe, came to me on behalf of a new coalition that a firm formed called the Coalition to Stop Dumping Sewage into the Ocean, which is very descriptive. Not poetic, can't really put it on a T-shirt, but um, they were dealing with the fact that LA's sewage treatment was so inadequate and that's a a long story I could give you chapter and verse about. But to make the story short, I became their lawyer um, uh, and I became one of the founders of of the organization it uh, rolled into, which is an organization called Heal the Bay – much more poetic name, much more <laughs> effective um, name, and a really good t shirt, which was very important from organizing. So I'm a lawyer, but I'm also more of an organizer, a community organizer uh, type. And there's a lore about Heal the Bay uh, being founded by six people in Dorothy Green's living room, and I was the lawyer in the mm-hmm. living room. So that was and so that became my life for quite a long time with this, you know little sturdy band of folks who were trying to not just heal the bay but heal LA mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that's it's kind of a long story but to make a long story short, we won in uh, some administrative proceedings in front of the regional Water Quality Control Board um, and we uh, negotiated a consent decree that got reopened so there's a lot of lawy- lawyering stuff to do. And then we had the consent decree and we went we hired our first full-time, person was a staff scientist who later became the head of the organization. He's a phenomenal person named Mark Gold, uh, who you should definitely interview at some point. He's just really terrific. And um, we hired him. But we were then in the – this is years down the road where we'd won good arguments in court, all that sort of stuff. And we were overseeing him the, a 12 year build out of the Hyperion sewage treatment plant to a state of the art full secondary treatment plant. Um, so, we're spending a lot of time with the engineers helping them try to move faster and get things done. And, you know, I think I'm a pretty good lawyer, but any lawyer who thinks that it's only law that makes a difference in making change clearly doesn't understand the world. Uh, the goal of an organizer is you've got to get the other guys to want to do what you want them to do, either because you can make them do it or you have the political will to embarrass them to do it, or you convince them, why not do it? Which we did a lot of that as well. And a new deputy mayor came in and uh, had seen me doing this for quite a while and convinced then Mayor Bradley that w- w- why not make her the head of the public works department because she's helping manage the wastewater program and. Her spare time, it wasn't a job. And we need to do the same thing in recycling because they had just lost a big battle to build a, a waste incinerator, something I, w- I was actually involved in that side of the thing too. And they had to do the largest recycling program in the world, and that meant engineers having to do things a little differently. And it turned out I was really good at it. I'm making a long story short because it's a weird governance structure that isn't like anywhere else in the world where you would have a civilian five-member board as the executive of a department. It's an anti-corruption thing from over 100 years ago, and the president of that board is the general manager of the department. There's no place else quite like it. So it was a very odd um, setup, but it was fabulous because I actually – I thought it was crazy, but I was actually better at that than being a lawyer. So I became an organizational manager, but it, it um, became an important thing to do. I didn't I didn't do it the first time they asked because I thought it might be a trick. And then two years later when they would actually done more of the things they said they would do and we had worked together with them more and I trusted them and they trusted me and stuff, then it made more sense. And Dorothy Green basically said she would kill me if I didn't do it because if you really want to make change, you want to take power Mm -hmm. because being the decision-maker – is much more effective than trying to influence the decision-maker or trying to sue the decision-maker. So if you could actually take over the thing, that's more effective. And you know, since then, a lot of um, environmental uh, activists and a lot of um, organizers and lawyers have gone into positions in government. This was one of the first – this is sort of the beginning of us sort of taking over L.A. And L.A.'s political coalition that we built has held – between the business community, the government community, and the environmental community, and the environmental justice community uh, pretty well over the course of the last four decades, which is nice. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so talking about your time as head of the Los Angeles Public Works Department, what were the biggest challenges when you were there, and what would you say were the biggest successes uh, during your time What's
1: Well, it's interesting. I would say that's probably the biggest job I'll ever have. It was – Huge, right? Because so many thousand employees and so many really hot issues. Obviously rebuilding the wastewater system, it was a four-point well, – almost a $4 billion upgrade. So a lot of contract management, all that. You stuff you wouldn't have thought of. That's where the law – the legal background actually came in handy. Um, uh, but rebuilding the wastewater program – Rolling out the recycling program was big. We did a lot on hazardous waste minimization and uh, we we grew the water recycling program, which is reaching – you know what we dreamed of 40 years ago is now Mayor Garcetti committed to and I'm sure Mayor Bass will continue to do 100% of Hyperions. So that's something we dreamed of 30 years ago. So it's just so exciting. If you live long enough, you can actually see those dreams come true. Um, which So those were some of the big things but we also had a lot of other things happening in the city. We had floods, we had uh, the civil disturbances or riots in 92 and we ended up being the agents that helped clean up communities and um, uh, deal with public safety and all that sort of thing. So it was a very intense period of time with a lot of disaster response and a lot of time spent in the emergency operations center, which is something I never would have expected. So I pretty much had to grow up 40 years in about Mm -hmm. four years. I mean there's nothing like um, emergencies can bring out the best and the worst in people. And I saw a lot of the best – come out and people not just in city government but all across the city that was really uh, inspiring. And I think we did a lot of things well and and LA was one of the big environmental turnarounds in the decade. At the time, So I'm actually really proud to have been a part of it and a part of being able to do it from the outside and then creating a big enough tent that we invited in the people from city government. And you you could just see the people in this department come alive because they were getting the resources they needed to do what they went to school to learn how to do. It's not like the people at the treatment plant went to work every day to manufacture sewage for the joy of dumping it in the ocean and killing a fish. It's that they were these – highly trained and hardworking people who were dealing with a river of human waste coming out 24 hours a day and they weren't being given the tools they needed to deal with it the way they wanted to. So it actually ended up being a match made in heaven in a way you never would have uh, anticipated. So really important. We did other things too, but it it was – it was an exciting time to be there. It was in the last Bradley term where he was trying to really take on all of the issues, particularly in the environment and housing and other things that he hadn't dealt with in the preceding 16 while he was doing other things.
0: Yeah, and so after that, you transitioned over to – well, there was a brief – or there was a stop at the US EPA. But yeah. talking more about your time at the – as chair of the California State Water Board, um, in terms of that, what what were the main – organizational differences between that job and the job at as head of the Los Angeles uh, Public Works Department and what were the similarly what were the biggest challenges and the the biggest successes during that time
1: well it's interesting because there's a it, you know, there's a difference between an operations agency and a regulatory agency, and I'd obviously been in the regulatory agency at EPA, which is fourteen different statutes. so you could, you've every shape, color, size, flavor of regulation um, was a part of my world there. it the state board was really a, a, a terrific opportunity in part again because of who was in charge. So uh, Mayor Bradley gave me the car keys and said, "Clean it up, kid, you know, <laughs> fix it." Uh, Jerry Brown as governor uh, similarly was uh, somebody very comfortable with himself understood how government work understood how independent agencies work and really wanted uh, to leave all kinds of legacies that you you know you don't you don't see um, in the headlines all the time people will focus on a particular project but he really very complex man with a very complex sense of what we needed to do to deal with climate change and particular and it became obvious to him and the people around him but obvious to him as someone who was always 30 years ahead of the curve as he had been in pushing the the amazing energy efficiency and uh, energy miracle that uh, has transformed California over the past 30, 40, maybe it's even more years now since he was governor the first time. And It became very apparent to him that with climate change, we were facing – a massive challenge to the state of California, where just with a few degrees temperature rise Fahrenheit, not we're not talking Celsius, Fahrenheit, more of the precipitation we do get would fall as rain rather than snow. It means more flooding in the spring. We're going to see it big time this year, uh, but it also means more drought and less snow left later on this year. A bonus on both counts. But generally what we're going to see is with temperature rise is that we're going to have more frequent and drier droughts. And that's a problem because in the state of California, which is based on this very extensive set of reservoirs and canals that bring water over hundreds of miles to the majority of Californians, snowpack is our single largest storage. And we've built all the other – there will be – Projects that happen, we need more small projects. We need more groundwater um, storage because that's big enough to compensate for a snowpack. But we've already dammed all the right places at at great environmental Mm -hmm. harm. You don't want to (laughs) do you Mm want to do more of those. Um, But it's also the scale of it. Um, It seems big because of the headlines you get, but the scale of it is not up to the challenge. And so as a result, he empowered a lot of us, not just the water board, to to get into action because the California water world can be something of a debating society with different stakeholders talking past each other. And so we did an action plan of 10 things, conservation first and foremost, the cheapest, smartest, fastest thing we can do. Um, Fewer people make money on it, so it's a little harder to get it through the policy world, but it absolutely is the smartest answer. He totally got that. Water recycling. Uh, stormwater capture, desal in the appropriate circumstances, not every circumstance, uh, preparing for drought, preparing for flood, and, and perhaps most importantly, and I'm not going to go through all 10, he signed the human right to water legislation that had been vetoed twice by the previous governor uh, to really make it a priority to state the California to get safe drinking water to all Californians. And we still have up to a million Californians that don't have access to clean, safe, and affordable drinking water. Most of those, it's the safe part where it's too contaminated and they're they're on shallow wells or small community wells that don't have the wherewithal to be able to treat to the modern level that we need to. And, and we were able then to get a whole series of pieces of legislation through moving the Moving the uh, program over to the state board for a a bunch of different synergies and opportunities, Um, billions of dollars, uh, legislation allows to consolidate some of these smaller – uh, agencies And now the the uh, Governor Newsom got a funding source to even be able to subsidize the operation and maintenance of some of these systems because we have communities that we could build them the system. They can't even afford the chemicals or the staffing. And so we're on our way, still a long way to go, but on our way towards making that a reality. And that I think is going to be one of the signature accompli- uh, accomplishments of both Governor Brown and Governor um, Newsom. Um, we also had to do a lot of work dealing with the drought. I spent a lot of time on the drought, um, emergency conservation rules, uh, streamlining recycling rules with expert panels and all of that, putting over a billion and a half dollars into getting recycled water projects off the drawing board and into the ground. And I just went to – last Friday, I just went to another ribbon cutting for one of those projects where Orange County has now recycled 100 percent. Of Orange County sanitation dif- wastewater. It's very exciting, but we've got to be doing it on speed mm-hmm. if we wanna deal with catching up or getting ahead of what climate change is gonna throw at us. And we're seeing it on the Colorado right now. So
0: Yeah, and so kind of for one last question, the Colorado River Compact is set to expire either this year or next year. Um and so yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's most like, like what you think is most likely to happen in terms of what cuts are going to be done? Who's going to be most likely see the biggest cuts? Is it going to be Arizona, Nevada, California? Yeah, just kind of any thoughts on that particular issue.
1: Well, just a couple. I mean there's two different things happening. One is that the, the agreement is up in 26. So right now we're kind of late on redoing that agreement where there's a lot of flexibility in what might happen next. In the short run, we're running out of water. It's The, the reservoirs, even with these snows, are lower than they've been at any time uh, since they were filled, they're the two largest reservoirs in the country, like Powell and Lake Mead. Um, they're at risk of hydropower not being able to be generated, which is a whole other series of impacts. Uh, there are infrastructure problems with it getting so low um, and we're at risk of getting to Deadpool within just a, a few years. And so as a result, the federal government has had to step in, in an unprecedented way to th- to threaten and, and I think uh, ultimately need to Change the rules before 20 because there's no water. There's no water. You can argue till the end of time, but there's no water. There's no water, and um, and it's important for the feds to come in and and help the states help themselves because there's a political dynamic there, right? No, no state official, agency official or governor or water director, wants to be accused of giving away water. That They should. they can lose it, but they can't give it away. It's political suicide. And so you end up with this weird dance, right? And you end up with posturing and all of this. And it it, it saddened me towards the beginning of this year when a, a deadline came up for submitting uh, uh, scenarios to be modeled that you had a lot of fractiousness between uh, the six of the seven states and California where the six states kind of ganged up and came up with an alternative that they called a consensus because it gouged California way out of bounds for what all the existing laws are and agreements. California pushed back and put in a constructive – they called it the constructive alternative because it complied with the law where they didn't say strictly water rights. We get it all and you know, forget you, Arizona. Um, but they offered up $400 million in cuts and they wanted, you know, to work things out. But they asked to model um, – these – that kind of a scenario, more water rights and existing rules oriented and that's what the federal government has come out with now in an environmental impact report, not two options but two scenarios to study the impacts of. So by looking at those two options, you see what the impacts are on recreation, on the environment, on the economy, on agriculture, on a whole bunch of things and within those bounds, they will then make a final – Decision, But they've said that what they hope is that the seven states will come to agreement. And the, the main point I wanted to make that I'm encouraged by is that the, the talking points that came out, even with these two sort of extreme bookends – We're very conciliatory about the states, that all the parties were saying, we think we can do better, we think we can work this out. I think because the feds indicated that they had to move and they were going to move. So the tone has changed. Also because of the bounty of rain and snow we've gotten, the level of the cuts is at the lower end of the range that they were threatening last year. So it's still hard to do, but it's not Armageddon. But 2026 is just around the corner. So it's really important to get ourselves into a an agreed-upon holding space now that doesn't let it all go down to the bitter end because that's going to be a much harder agreement to make.
0: Unfortunately, that is all that we have time for today. Thank you so much, Ms. Marcus, for joining us. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.